there is somebody in office who is so terrible and so dangerous to the republic, we can't even wait until the next election. We've had incompetent presidents, we've had terrible presidents, we've had presidents make stupid decisions, we've had presidents with bad sense of humor. I mean, we've had all kinds of reasons why you might dislike the president. But this is saying that that person literally must be removed before the next election because the fate of the country might be harmed if it's not. Imagine a world in which your elected leaders may not be removed from office. You go to the polls, you vote, and for whichever leader wins the election, they're handed a mandate and a golden ticket to pilfer the country in whatever way they see fit. In the United States and many other democracies around the globe, even the holder of the highest elected office in the land is still subject to removal via an impeachment process. This final check on power is the last resort when things go wrong. Join us as we explore impeachment in the United States. This is Riches in Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. Jeffrey A. Engel is a founding director of the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University, where he's a professor in the Clements Department of History. Jeff is also a senior fellow of the Norwegian Nobel Institute and of the John Goodwin Tower Center for Political Studies. In 2012, the Society of Historians of American Foreign Relations named him their Bernath Prize Lecturer, and he's a prolific author, having written or edited 13 books on American foreign policy. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with him about his work and research on the topic of impeachment, which he wrote about in the 2018 book called Impeachment, an American History. Learn more about Jeff and his work at www.smu.edu slash news slash expert slash Jeffrey dash Engel. Jeff, thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate all the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Looking forward to it. You know, we hear impeachment, unfortunately, I think in recent years in particular, bandied around quite a bit. But probably the last time most of us learned about it was in high school, maybe college if we're lucky. So what is impeachment in the United States? How does it work? Well, it didn't used to be as relevant, obviously, as it now is. And I'm sure we'll get into that. And and thinking about impeachment from a presidential level and from the level of the federal government, it really is an opportunity for the legislative branch to look at the executive and say, we don't like what you're doing. In fact, we don't like what you're doing so much, we don't think you should do it anymore in office. And it's important to note that that level of distrust and the level of anger that the legislature is supposed to have in impeachment isn't necessarily because they disagree with the policies. It's because there's something worse going on within the official. There's some corruption, corruption of their soul in many ways, that they can no longer be trusted with the public trust. So impeachment is a political process wherein the legislature essentially says, even though you're in office, we think our country would be better off and safer if you were no longer there. And therefore, it's a a way to remove that person from office. And in the U.S., at least, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the House of Representatives starts the process, kicks it over to the Senate, and the Senate has the final say. Is that right? Yes. Impeachment itself is actually not the part that most people think of. Impeachment is the process of the House of Representatives, in theory, having done some investigation, 
passing a resolution to say, we think the president should go on trial. That person, if that happens, is then impeached. So Bill Clinton was impeached. Donald Trump was impeached twice. It then happens that that person goes to the trial, which is in the Senate. And there, they need to have a a two-thirds majority. But also, the chief justice of the Supreme Court is actually the person who resides over that trial. And I have to say, trial is a weird word here because it is essentially a political trial. It is essentially, can you convince two-thirds of the senators that you should stay or go? And therefore, the rules are not the rules of a normal trial. The, the chief justice is there almost in an honorary fashion. The Senate gets to pass the rules of how the trial is going to go every single time. So there is really nothing to think of this in a criminal sense, but rather this is all a political process. Why do you think it is that, and and I kind of touched on this even, impeachment and removal from office are oftentimes conflated as ideas? I think in common dialogue, we say, oh, so so so-and-so was impeached. And we mean, well, they kind of were almost removed from office, but then they weren't. But they're two distinct actions, if you will. Why, Why do you think those are confused so often? Yeah, I I think it's confused, again, thinking about presidents. I mean, we've actually had other impeachments at the federal level. There's been judges who have been impeached and and convicted and removed from office, but people only really think about the presidents. Until the 1970s, we'd only had one instance in the nation's history, and there was nobody around in the 1970s who remembered Andrew Johnson's impeachment back in the 1860s after the Civil War. Consequently, Because Richard Nixon, I'm sure we can get into the details of this, because Richard Nixon, the second man who was threatened with impeachment, decided to leave office before he could be formally impeached and most likely formally convicted. I think there's just been a conflation in the public mind that any time that you have a person impeached, that means removing them from office and that Nixon resigned to get ahead of that process, which is absolutely true. But again, he was not actually impeached, oddly enough. And so consequently, I think that it's an understanding within the public that this is such a terrible thing that just merely the act of being impeached is essentially enough to, in theory, ruin your political career or at least first line of your political biography. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily still the case for Donald Trump, (laughs) but it's supposed to be such a badge of dishonor from the perspective of the framers that I think Americans still to this day think that there is no greater threat to a president than that he he or she might be removed from office. And they put the entire process together in that one word. And so the framers, I think it's a great place to look back to, to really understand this subject, because Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution, and I'm going to quote it here, and I think the language is kind of fascinating, and I'm sure you have some insights and thoughts on it, but the, the language is, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And what's always stuck out to me there is that it's awfully vague for such a big kind of last stand moment in somebody's political career, potentially. What's a high crime and misdemeanor? That sounds like you could drive a truck between some assumptions on on that front. Simultaneously, yes and no, which is to say, in practical purposes, High crime and misdemeanors means, as Gerald Ford said uh, when he was actually still in the Congress and talking about a judge, that a high crime and misdemeanor is whatever Congress thinks a high crime and misdemeanor is on that day. You know, essentially, it's the vote confirms the crime or the infringement, I should say. 
But the founders actually had a very clear understanding of what a high crime and misdemeanor was. A high crime was something which was violating the public trust, something which was the person putting themselves above the public interest. And in fact, it doesn't have to be a crime. And in fact, you can be, have a president who commits a crime, which is not a high crime. The, my favorite example is you can have a president that gets convicted of jaywalking. Well, yeah, that's a crime. It's on the books. You've been tried. You've been convicted. Does any reasonable person think that just because the president jaywalked, they should be removed from office? I'll be completely frank with you. I jaywalked on the way over to this interview today. <laughs> yeah. uh, and therefore, it's really uh, the word high is what I wish people would really focus on. It, there's a moral sense to it. There's an ethical sense to it. It's not necessarily a crime that we can find on the books. It's the very moral crime, if you will, of putting your own political needs above that of your fellow citizens. It's maybe best exemplified in modern times with Clinton, and he had the sexual impropriety, but that's not what he was impeached for. He was impeached for the lying under oath. Isn't that right? Well, you want, the real, potato, maybe? <laughs> want the real answer or a legal answer? The legal answer is he was impeached for lying under oath. And by the way, this is a good example of whether or not the question is a high crime. Nobody really doubted that he lied under oath. That was not a question. The question was, does a married man denying in a public setting or in a legal setting an affair that his wife doesn't know about, does that mean you couldn't be a good president? Uh, and you know you can make arguments on both sides. You know, Some people would say the constitution says the president must be in charge, the chief executive is in charge of enforcing all the laws. How can you enforce the laws if you don't follow the laws yourself, et cetera? Or you could say you know, half of Americans who are married claim to have had affairs at some time, many of which are not revealed to their spouse. Is that a reason that they should lose their job? Is that a reason that they should have their lives ended? We all make mistakes in some ways. So uh, Clinton was, in a technical sense, impeached for that crime. However, I think in a practical sense, he was impeached for having the affair. And he was impeached essentially for giving his political opponents an opportunity to try to use the ultimate political weapon against him. We need to remember in Clinton's case that he was being investigated for something else utterly entirely different from what he wound up getting in trouble for. He was being investigated for the potential for a shady real estate deal, which he had done while he was governor. Now, again, by the way, you can ask the question whether anybody who commits a shady real estate deal as a governor can't be a good president. That's a different question. He was being investigated for a real estate deal, and the investigators found out about this affair. And then they asked him about it, basically in a gotcha moment, because they expected that he would deny it, because that's what people usually do when they have an affair and, and are confronted with a lawyer. Long story short, Clinton essentially gave an opportunity to his political opponents, who had already, for political reasons, set up the mechanism to investigate to try to get him in trouble. He gave them the rope to hang himself with. So founders had a pretty clear idea that high crimes and misdemeanors was a violation of the public trust. Hopefully, and we'll get into this, hopefully that's still the North Star these days in impeachment proceedings. Perhaps not always, depending on where you, you sit on the political aisle any given day. And then coming back to the other point you made, really the intent was to give Congress the latitude to make a determination as to what a high crime is in, in their contemporary society. Is that fair? Yes, and we have to remember that this was not something that Congress ever expected would be used, or at the very least, used ever often. I like to use a phrase the founders never would have used. It's the nuclear option, which is to say there is somebody in office who is so terrible and so dangerous to the republic 
we can't even wait until the next election. You know, I mean, we've had incompetent presidents. We've had terrible presidents. We've had presidents make stupid decisions. We've had presidents with bad sense of humor. I mean, we've had all kinds of reasons why you might dislike the president. But this is saying that that person literally must be removed before the next election because the fate of the country might be harmed if it's not. Not because of politics, not because of policies, not because you like a 17% tax as opposed to a 15% tax. This is something that is deeper, that that person is no longer able to essentially put the public interest first, which is the first goal of every citizen, but certainly the first goal from the founder's perspective of every leader. So there have been really four, well, I guess you should say five impeachments or near impeachments for people who have been impeached or nearly impeached as presidents in the U.S. We've touched on a few of them. Andrew Johnson, back in 1868, that's probably the least remembered, at least memorable, perhaps, of impeachments. What happened? What happened there? Why was he impeached? Well, we have to remember that Johnson wasn't supposed to be president. He was, of course, brought on to the vice presidential ticket by Abraham Lincoln in 1864, because Johnson, a Democrat, had been the only member of the of a, from a Southern state who had stayed in the Senate. He had proved his loyalty, if you will. And therefore, Abraham Lincoln, who we have to remember, was not so clear that he was going to win the 64 election. In fact, for most of 64, you had gotten good odds on him losing that election. Abraham Lincoln thought a unity ticket would try to pull some Democrats over to his side. So he elects a person who he doesn't agree with on basically any issue except for the fact that we need to win the Civil War. Unfortunately, of course, we all know what happens to Abraham Lincoln in the wake of the Civil War. And that puts the head of the government, of the winning government, of the winning army after the Civil War, and we're talking in the immediate wake of the Civil War, weeks after the war has ended nearly, when the real question for that has been gripping Americans for years is how to sew this country back together again after something that people are still in the midst of the turmoil. The person who becomes in charge of that process is a Democrat when the Congress is driven by Republicans, because that was the party of the North predominantly, and the person who had been elected president was a Republican. And Johnson, therefore, did not agree with a lot of the plans that Republican leadership had to reform the South and to try to find a process for readmitting the South. And frankly, it's fair to say that Johnson, among his personality traits, he was quite the racist. And remember, we're talking about a list of people, presidents, many of whom owned other people because of their race. So when I tell you that Johnson was arguably the most racist president in American history, I want people to pause and, and reconsider the company in which he's keeping in that sentence. And therefore, Johnson was particularly incensed at the idea that the Republicans were moving in a direction of giving more and more rights, maybe even equal rights, maybe even the right to vote to African-Americans, especially those in, in Southern states. And he did everything in his power to get in the way. Um, now, again, that's the broad reason why he was impeached. The specific reason is that uh, because he was a, a Democrat with a Republican Congress and a Republican cabinet, Congress on the Republican leadership had passed a law saying that a president cannot fire someone whom the Senate has approved of for a cabinet position without getting the Senate's permission. And there's a kind of a logic to that, if you think about it. If you're going to force the Senate to say, is this person qualified or not, before you fire the person, maybe you should be forced to ask the Senate again. By the way, no constitutional lawyer today thinks that's a good idea, and, and no one at the time really thought it was a great idea, except as a means to control Andrew Johnson. Well, Andrew Johnson, being a hard-headed fellow, 
violates the law. He fires the Secretary of Navy and therefore essentially creates a political crisis, not because necessarily that he was against any one particular policy, but because he had built up a lot of animosity with his political opponents. And then again, he gave them the rope to hang himself with by violating this law. From a constitutional perspective, I would argue Johnson had every right to violate that law because it's a bad law. But you can see how the politics and the legality and the legal intricacies are sometimes a little difficult to pull apart from these things. So the commonality seems to be giving the rope to hang oneself with, with a lot of these, that it's the legislature looking for an excuse to, to go to the nuclear option, as you said earlier. Is that fair? I think that's actually a fair estimation because if we look at, and again, we have a very, very small sample size. I like to remind people that when we talk about the presidents, we have a small sample size. No scientist would run an experiment with only 45 <laughs> examples and expect to draw anything logical from it. And with impeachments, we have even fewer. We have only, as you mentioned, four individuals who genuinely have faced this political test. So we, again, small sample size. But in each case, I would say that the president has done something in order to give his political opponents the opportunity to try to use this cudgel against him. You know, I remember during Donald Trump's first impeachment, uh, I was working for one of the TV networks at the time, and the person seated next to me on the studio, who was a very virulent Trump supporter, said, you know, the problem with this entire process is that the Democrats have been out to get Trump from the very beginning. And I said, that's not the way you should be thinking about this. I think I said it more harshly than that. That's not the way you should be thinking about this. I said, you need to think about this like a speed trap, which is to say, when a sheriff sets up a speed trap and you drive through it, but you're not speeding, you know what typically doesn't happen? You don't get pulled over. A speed trap occurs, you speed through it, you're going to get pulled over. Every president in the modern era basically is driving through a speed trap. His political opponents just can't wait to find something on him from Nixon on forward, at least in the impeachment context. Therefore, I argue that a president would have to do something, whether it's the aforementioned affair and then lying about it for Bill Clinton, whether it's the prospect of trying to use foreign aid as a political tool, as Donald Trump was accused of, or subsequently fomenting an insurrection. The president has to do something. If they don't do something wrong in their day-to-day -day life, they could get down to an approval rating of two without necessarily being subject to a removal for high crime or misdemeanor. So Andrew Johnson, 1868, you then have to wait over 100 years until you get to Richard Nixon, who was, was not technically impeached because he resigned. This is the Watergate scandal in 1974. Bill Clinton, 98, we've touched on that. Donald Trump, 2019, that was for the Ukraine aid fiasco, if memory serves, then 2021, as you said, fomenting an insurrection. Both of those failed, or I should say, all of these failed. No, no one has actually been removed from office. I think perhaps the most interesting topic in this world, and you wrote about this in the book, you wrote about the Constitution and, and Donald Trump in particular, the world of impeachment has just gotten overwhelmingly political, it feels like, in recent years. And to your point, very small sample size. We've got four people, five instances. But why do you think that it's become, and perhaps I'm, I'm being overbearing with using this term, but why do you think it's become such a fairly commonly used political tool these days, as opposed to the first couple hundred years of the country's existence? Oh boy, that's, that's the $64 question, to use an old <laughs> reference. 
Big, uh, um, very high budget on the show, 64 bucks. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think in some way, I'll give you two answers. I think in, most importantly, our politics today, and I think we can't rule out the importance of the Cold War ending in this discussion. The Cold War, essentially, we now think of it because it's in history, as having had a, a muting effect, if you will, on partisan conflict. Because no matter how much Republicans and Democrats hate each other, they all had to work together so that the world wouldn't get destroyed with nuclear weapons. So there's kind of parameters that people put on civility in, within the Cold War. Those leave uh, by, by the 1990s. And interestingly enough, every president since George H.W. Bush, so beginning with Bill Clinton, has been hated and despised by his political adversaries to a different degree. I think, than presidents before. I think the answer may be the Cold War, or it may be as you run through, as every listener runs through their list of presidents, they might say, well, that's because there were several despicable presidents. Here's the fun part of that sentence. You can say that whether you're Republican or Democrat. People have started to see their political adversaries as unpatriotic enemies, not just as political opponents. So the big thing that has occurred, I think, in American society that has made this more common is the fact that people are more eager to find something that a president has done because they despise them and they would like to see them destroyed, not just politically defeated. That's a really interesting point. But I, I suppose pushing on that, I, I interviewed a, a guy named H.W. Brands uh, recently who wrote a book called Founding Partisans. And Founding Partisans was about the early days of the country and the early political parties. And things were nasty back then, politically speaking, as they were these days. And so do you really think that there was a greater level of respect, I suppose, from one party towards another that's, that's eroded? Or do you think that the Cold War provided more of a historical aberration and united the country towards a common enemy, so to speak, for that period of time, but before and after, eh, still pretty nasty? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, as you point out, the Cold War is not the entirety of American history, though it's obviously, from my perspective, the most fascinating part of American history, but that's a different podcast. And therefore, it can't be the answer for everything. I, I do think that the Cold War's ending, coupled with, I hate to be a millionth person to say this, but coupled with new media technologies and new media forums, have provided, if you will, a catalyst to the anger that brands and every other historian knows occurred from the 1750s onward. I mean, the the amount of political violence that used to be somewhat normal in this country is astounding. In fact, just a few days before this taping, celebrated the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. We should remember that that was an act of political violence preceded by multiple acts of actual violence by partisans on both sides. So the idea that politics would turn particularly nasty and ugly is nothing new. I think the speed with which the political discussion moves, coupled with a particular level of anger that that new media can generate, I think has created a different political environment. But I would point out George W. Bush was remarkably, historically unpopular by the end of his administration, and he was not impeached. Um, mm -hmm. By the same token, Barack Obama was unpopular with his opponents including his successor who claimed he was not eligible to be president because obviously he claimed a crazy idea that he wasn't actually a citizen and he was not impeached. And I think that that reinforces that a president really does need to do something transcendently bad. And if you think about George W. Bush, it's actually a useful example because his decision to invade Iraq, I would argue as a historian, is, is if not the worst strategic decision in American history, well within the conversation. 
And I, and with a very few exceptions in Congress uh, included, I would argue that that was not an impeachable offense. That was just a bad policy because mm-hmm. he was trying his best. He was trying to do the best for the country. Yes, there were a few radicals who called for his removal from office. But it, it, you know, it, in politics, we've discovered that a person can say anything they want if there's no consequences. So if you know the president's not going to be impeached and you want to make political points with your own constituents, sure, say, hey, let's impeach him because we know this is not going anywhere. So Obama, George W. Bush, neither of them did anything that their political opponents who were looking could find to get them out of office, despite the fact that each was unpopular during different points of their administration. So the Cold War is a a uniting factor, if you will. Looking to, and I actually was thinking about uh, the invasion of Iraq, the, the war on terror more broadly, why do you think some of these more modern conflicts haven't served as similarly politically uniting things like the Cold War was? Were they just not big enough? They weren't existential enough? I think that's the answer. In fact, I got very frustrated after 9-11 when politicians in particular refer and upmend and the entire terrorist industrial complex. There was a lot of money to be made off this, we should remember. I'm not trying to say there wasn't a threat. I'm just saying that people had a vested interest in elevating the threat from time to time. That the conflict was oftentimes described as an existential crisis, to which I, I think, and other reasonable historians said, you don't understand what the word existential means. You know, the American Revolution was existential. The Civil War was existential. If you don't succeed, the country ends. I would argue the Great Depression actually was existential. 9-11, 9-11, for all of its horror, and the war on terror, for all of its horror, was not going to destroy the fabric of the country so that it no longer ceases to be a country. That's what existential means. So I do think that there's a, a way in which subsequent conflicts have not, thankfully, risen to a level of danger that requires every American to feel invested. And by the way, because the conflicts are smaller... And because we have a professional army, all-volunteer army, military, excuse me, uh, post-Vietnam, it's been very easy for American leaders to fight the small wars, what Rudyard Kipling used to refer to as the savage wars of peace uh, 100 years before, to fight these small war- wars around the world without encumbering too much of the country's attention. Uh, in fact, there was a moment uh, in the week of 9-11 where George W. Bush was asked what the average American should do. You know, this is a new war. And his response was, go shopping, go to the mall. Uh, as, we need to keep the economy going. That's your job in this process. Well, that's not the most valorious thing that a person can, can think of, of doing. I remember that moment, though, after 9-11. I mean, it, it felt like there was this brief moment when the country was incredibly aligned and anything was possible. I remember, in fact, reading an opinion piece. Someone wrote, what if instead of invading a foreign country, we had done an infrastructure bill or something like that in the United States? what might have happened. And obviously, it's a counterfactual at this point, but there was a brief moment of, of real national unity. And, and so it's an interesting idea that coming out of the Cold War, that, that was lost. You then get into, and we've all seen, I'm sure, those, those dot plots of political parties and, and how everyone's opinion is just pulled away from the center. And I, I do think that that social media has, has caused that to a large degree because you can just create your own echo chamber these days, whereas during and before the Cold War, that wasn't possible. But Looking to particularly Trump, because that's the, the, the nearest example of an impeachment, I, I think the other thing that's so fascinating about this is, in addition to it becoming a political tool, and, and maybe this is just another side of the same coin, but 
when Trump was impeached both times, his acquittal was just totally a foregone conclusion. I, I mean, I, I don't know that I read any serious conjecture that he was actually going to be removed from office. That seems strange and, and eerie in some sense, because to your point about thinking of impeachment as a nuclear option, if the nuclear option is pulled and it's pulled for bad reasons, that's not a good thing. But if it's pulled for good reasons, but totally ineffectual, that's also not a good thing. And I wonder, is that as odd and as eerie as it feels from your perspective? It's dangerous and, and disappointing. And it's important to note that the same dynamic was true during Bill Clinton's impeachment. There was really zero chance he was going to get convicted by the Senate because the Democrats had enough votes. End of story. In fact, Democrats had so many votes that some of their members were allowed to consider and even voting for impeachment because you know you can lose a vote if you've got 10 to spare. But same for Donald Trump, by the way, who you know had a couple of Republicans vote against him, but didn't matter. The way to think about this is this is the reason, not to go too meta, but this is the reason why George Washington hated political parties, because he worried that people would become more loyal to their partisan leaning and to their partisan identity than to the nation itself. So every senator who said, well, I'm a Republican, so I'm going to vote with Trump, or I'm a Democrat, I'm going to vote with Clinton, was not doing their duty, actually, that they signed up for. In fact, I always thought an interesting experiment you couldn't pull it off. But an interesting experiment, one that you would do in philosophy class is useful, um, would help senators understand where they should stand on these issues. Because uh, John Rawls, who wrote A Theory of Justice in the 70s, talked about the way to really understand what is a just law is to put yourself in what he called the veil of ignorance, which is to say, imagine you don't know who you are at all. Like you don't know if you're a man, woman, black, white, handicapped, you don't know anything. And a law is presented to you that's going to affect a certain percentage of people. If it could be you, what would you do? And if you're still worried about that law, if not knowing that it could affect you, then maybe you shouldn't do it. By the same token, if we could have somehow Americans and their senators be able to review evidence without knowing that the person that we're talking about is a Republican or a Democrat, then how would you vote? That would be a very useful way of understanding what really is a high crime. And now, again, never happen. It defies logic in many ways. So people obviously in our real, real life don't have a veil of ignorance. You and I know what we, who we are. But I do think it, it suggests to us that senators are on both sides of the aisle, and Congress people too, thinking with their party first uh, instead mm -hmm. of the nation first. And that's exactly as the founders feared. That is a, an interesting way to think about it. And, and to your point, like the, the all-time worst biased jury exercise, you, you have to go to someone who doesn't know a thing about what's going on in the headlines to, to run a natural experiment like that. But I buy it. I, I think you probably come up with some different decisions on, on the modern impeachment trials. Yeah. In fact, you know, I, I, used to, <laughs> I used to joke that I would have been the perfect OJ juror um, <laughs> because I was doing study abroad back in 1994 when all that went down. So I was out of the country. So I got no, I got no information on this. So yeah, thankfully, I was not called. You know, looking ahead and I found a Thomas Jefferson quote, I think, in, in one of your books that I thought was great. He, he called it, and this is echoes your nuclear option statement. Jefferson wrote of impeachment as the most formidable weapon for the purpose of a dominant faction that was ever contrived. And I wonder, looking ahead, if, and I don't know, but if impeachments truly do become common, 
uh, like there's there's one in the works against Biden I was reading about just the other day. And I don't know if that's going to come to pass. I would assume he's not going to be removed from office. But if impeachments become so standard that they lose their power, does that strike you as a dangerous thing to have happen? Oh, most definitely. To put a finer point on something that you just mentioned along the way, there have been two impeachments, both of President Trump's, since our book came out in 2018, and President Biden now has a formal investigation for purposes of impeachment going on. And my co-authors and I have asked ourselves repeatedly over the last several years, since 2018, a lot's happened. Do we need a new edition? And just this very morning, we said, yeah, actually, we think enough has happened that we need a new edition. And so I do think that there is a sense in which it is very, very dangerous to suppose that any political party, as Jefferson feared, that was able to immediately muster two-thirds of the vote without thinking could remove anyone from office. That's dangerous. What is equally dangerous, I think, is knowing that approximately half of the senators aren't even going to open their ears during a, a political trial of either party is very dangerous. Now, I hope as a citizen I hope that if something ever happened, God forbid, that a president should be removed from office for a genuine high crime, that they would be able to convince even members of his own party that he should be removed. That did not happen for Trump's first trial. The Trump's second trial, I think, is a better example because that, of course, was the trial over the January 6th insurrection. And one of the problems with that trial, I think, in retrospect, is that everyone presumed that Donald Trump's, everyone, including Donald Trump maybe, presumed that his political career was over um, in January of 2021, that what they had just witnessed happened was so damaging and so terrible that he would never have a political future and that even Republicans would never rally around him again. I do wonder sometimes in their darkest moments of the middle of the night, if Republican senators, especially those who today oppose Trump, who had a vote in 2021, wouldn't have wished that they had more moral courage then to eliminate Donald Trump, not only as a threat potentially to the nation, but as a political threat to their own political futures. You know, if you want to be president of the United States and you're a Republican, you got to deal with Donald Trump. There was a moment when I think you could have gotten unity to remove a president for what he did, except most people thought this problem is going to solve itself, which is to say Trump was leaving office and therefore was not going to be in power. So in fact, he's no longer a president at all. As a matter of fact, it happened after the transfer of power. So consequently, if you've got a, a guy who used to be president, who is never going to be president, and the only reason to impeach and convict someone is to make sure that they would not be president, well, he's not going to be president anyway. So it's okay to vote partisan, well, along partisan lines. I, I think in retrospect, that was a flaw within the, the thinking of Republican leadership in 2021. It's kind of darkly funny that you can write a book on presidential impeachments in the U.S. in 2018, and that's version one, and you get five years down the road, and you need a version two. You know, you, you get all 200 and some odd years in 2018, and then you need V2 five years later. That's pretty wild. I never thought of it that way, but that is depressing, yeah. But also, my co-authors and I were, were praised for having good timing, bringing out a book in 2018 right before the president got impeached in 2019. And to be frank, none of the four of us were particularly surprised. Uh, we thought that Donald Trump was such an unusual character, unusual president. He had built his entire campaign, even as his supporters would say, on breaking political norms, that at some point 
just because he saw himself as a bull in a china shop, he was going to break enough China to get impeachment on the national agenda. We thought that was a pretty safe bet, to be honest. Nobody would have bet twice. So as we wrap up the conversation here, there, there are a couple ideas I encountered in your work that, that I think provide, and, and I was curious to learn from you, uh, provide some important context internationally, because we, we all live in the US, we, we're used to, accustomed to our impeachment process. But what I thought was interesting as I was researching this is that we're, we're fairly unique. We're, we're one of the older, if not the oldest, constitutional democracies. We're fairly unique in that the legislative branch handles the impeachment process. More commonly, my understanding is that's in a judicial or even non-judicial, you know, kind of a, a separate arm of government that that is hopefully independent that looks at the impeachment process. I'm wondering what are the relative advantages and disadvantages of our process? And as you look around internationally, do you see a process that you think works overwhelmingly better than ours? That's a good question. I never thought of that before. I'm not even sure I'm qualified to answer that question. I, haven't <laughs> I certainly am not. <laughs> I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about other countries' impeachment yeah. processes. I'm trying to figure out ours. You know, I'm not actually, at the end of the day, dissatisfied with our impeachment process. I am dissatisfied with some of the selections that voters have made across the country. I'm amazed at how many Americans today from both parties don't really believe in democracy and are willing to openly tell pollsters that they think the Constitution doesn't necessarily need to be followed or that political violence is useful if it gets their side what they want. That's more disturbing to me. I mean, impeachment was always supposed to be a political process. So I don't see a particular need to put it to the judiciary or put it to an independent committee because even the selection of those people is political. In fact, I think it's important that there is a sense in our society today that the word political is tainted, much in the same way that the word propaganda is tainted. So it's got a bad feel to it. It feels bad coming out of our mouth. If I say that's a political decision, you kind of scratch your head and say, oh, so it wasn't necessarily the right decision. Uh, I think we need to do away with that and remember that we are talking about politics. So of course, it's a political decision. And it shouldn't surprise us that political decisions occur in politics. So the process today doesn't bother me as a process. I do wish senators on both sides of the aisle thought themselves capable at this point, or to a better extent, this is easy for me to say from the chief seats, had the moral courage to vote their conviction and not their party. Though again, you could argue that they're politicians and therefore they believe that the country would be better off so long as their party stays in charge. So you can make a case either way. But I was very frustrated during both impeachments with President Trump by the number of people who commented that any representative and then subsequently any senator who voted there against their party was showing political courage and great moral courage. I thought that was, am I allowed to curse on your podcast? I thought that was bollocks, shall we say. Uh, you know, I, I teach military history, among other things, and storming Normandy Beach takes courage. You know, jumping out of an airplane takes courage. I have not yet in my entire life seen an ex-senator on the food stamp line. So the worst thing that happens when these people leave office is they join a corporate board and they make a lot more money than it is a senator. If that's the worst thing that's going to happen to you for doing the right thing, I wish we had more people willing to do the right thing. Easy for me to say. I have tenure. Looking historically, you studied and read a lot about Johnson, Nixon, Clinton, Trump. Are there any commonalities. And as I think about it, we may have touched on this using your, your speed trap analogy. We may have touched on the commonality here, but did any commonalities emerge about their presidencies when viewed through the lens of impeachment that you think really stood out? I, you know, I, I, 
I do have to go back to that point that they each did do something that is worthy of discussion, that a reasonable person could say, we should at least look into that more. And not, again, because of policies. Note that Nixon was not impeached for bombing Cambodia, though that actually is something that would in many ways have been an impeachable offense. He lied to Congress. Um, Raul Reagan was not impeached for Iran-Contra, which also involved lying to Congress because people could argue, well, it was a stupid decision or it was a bad decision or you shouldn't have lied to us, but we understood you were trying to do good. Impeachment is only been reserved in our history for somebody who is trying not to do good for some moment, or at least a reasonable percentage of the population could perceive that we should look into this further. So a president who doesn't do anything bad that could violate the public trust, I genuinely think has nothing to worry about. So I, you know, feel free to call me up next year and tell me I was wrong. But I really don't think President Biden has anything to worry about the current impeachment unless it's discovered that he did something. Right now, the impeachment seems to be centered upon his son's abuse of the president's reputation when he was vice president as well. That's embarrassing, but that's not a high crime for the president of the United States. So unless we find that President Biden did something, and especially if he did something in office, I think he's going to weather this political storm, such as it is. Well, it is a profound point you made about the, the senator coming out of office. They get hired on a company board. They make more money than they did. There, there isn't really a downside. It doesn't take much courage to, to vote against their party. I think that what emerges from this discussion, though, that I find fascinating is the, in my view, at least the frequency of impeachment lessens it, it, its impact. And I think the frequency of impeachment we've experienced as a country over the last decade or two perhaps makes it start to feel more like a purely political thing and perhaps enables senators to say, well, I'm just voting the party line because this is obviously a political sham that we're going through. And the nuclear option doesn't feel much like a nuclear option if you read about it every other year. I think you're right. To quibble ever so slightly and say that perhaps we should use the word partisan there instead of political. Fair. The more it feels like a partisan thing, the less it matters. And I think we need to recall, again, going back to the founders, there are very few things you can say about the founders that they all agreed upon. But I think this is one that's pretty close, that what they considered most important for a public official was virtue. That is to say, are you willing to put the public trust ahead of your own? Consequently, I think that's still a useful place for us to think about where impeachment discussions should wind up because their presumption was that anybody who was in the discussion of an impeachment would be so ashamed and so embarrassed that they would crawl home with their tail between their legs and never want to be seen again and never show their face in public. You don't have a sense of virtue unless you have the opposite, which is a sense of shame. And today, if we have politicians who have no shame or who think that any shaming that comes to them is only for partisan reasons, then yes, you're absolutely right. Impeachments have become way too common and feckless. Well, you may have just answered this, but my final question I always like to ask everybody is, what do you think you've learned in the course of your study of impeachment here in the U.S. that you think applies to today's world? I really spend a lot of time thinking about that notion of what a high crime is. Because the older I get, the more I'm aware that the world is complex and difficult. And as a presidential historian in particular, there's a funny thing that happens to presidents when their archives open effectively. Um, historians go in and see that things that we thought were complex were way more complex than we realized. 
Therefore, the decisions that we were trying to, that we were criticizing or praising of a president need to be really reevaluated. So I guess I'm more willing to give people the benefit of the doubt for their bad policy choices and for their bad political choices. I am less willing, however, to give anybody the benefit of the doubt for abusing the public trust. And I think if you can't see the difference, perhaps you shouldn't be in office. Well, Jeff Engel, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the time. This has been great. And and for everybody listening, to learn more about Jeff and his fantastic work, visit smu.edu slash news slash experts slash Jeffrey dash Engel. Thank you, Jeff. Really appreciate it. And I loved the conversation. Had a great time. I enjoyed it. Looking forward to listening to you in, in future episodes and call again anytime. This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay, edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2023 by Wesley Capital, LLC. 